Hi, this is Paul, and this is Rough Draft for Sunday, where I run through the current version of my Sunday sermon. Not sure how, not sure how this is going to go. Um, I'm going to try and do something kind of ambitious with this sermon, involving the amount of material I want to get through. And so, um, actually, part of the reason that I run through this is I work on the, I work on the timeline and see exactly how much time this is going to take, how much reading I can do. How much commenting I can do, how I can skip things. Now, those of you who watch my 9:30 adult Sunday school class will recognize this illustration. What is the difference between a corrupt cop and a righteous cop? Can you tell from the outside what the difference between a corrupt cop and a righteous cop is? They both drive a police car. They both wear a uniform. They both carry a gun. They both carry handcuffs. There they are. This is what a cop looks like. Now, you can tell the difference in terms of their behavior. The righteous cop won't take a bribe. The corrupt cop will. The righteous cop can be trusted. The corrupt cop can't. And again, just from looking at them, you might not be able to tell. But the idea is that inside the righteous cop is a thing called righteousness. Now, the Sermon on the Mount talks about that in terms of a heart. Now, in our culture, we tend to use the phrase a good person or a bad person. A, a corrupt cop would be a bad person and a righteous cop would be a good person. But this word righteousness, which is really sort of at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, is whatever it is inside that makes the righteous cop good and the corrupt cop bad. Now, last week we saw that Jesus begins his sermon with aporia. That's sort of a breaking down. Jesus is breaking old assumptions about our assumptions about the real world. Oh, I should just edit that slide. Jesus is breaking old assumptions about the real world, about the path that leads to blessedness, who to trust, who to follow, how to enter the kingdom of heaven. God's reign over existence beginning now and continuing everlastingly. Now, the Sermon on the Mount can be, is, is really this nested matrix of threes. There's an introduction, a main body, and an application. And in the main body that runs from chapter 5 to chapter 7 uh, has just lots of groups of threes. And scholars have noted this all over the place. At the beginning, there's three laws, murder, adultery, divorce, three ways of managing adversaries, oaths, retribution, hatred, three exercises of piety, and then three antitheses, and then there's another three, in fact, that follows, that follows those that we'll get into. There's a frame around the sermon that establishes this question of righteousness. Now, this question of righteousness was a very big conversation in the ancient world that can be traced all the way back to Plato's Republic. Because a lot of what they wrestled with in Plato's Republic is what is just, what makes a person just, and then by virtue of sort of scaling up, what makes a city just. Jesus begins this main section of the sermon by saying, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you, until heaven and earth disappears, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now again, I think most people who read this sort of mentally sort of gloss over righteousness and don't bother to ask themselves, well, what, what exactly are we talking about? What is this, this thing, this quality, this very difficult thing to actually um, conceptualize or name that makes the good cop good and the bad cop bad? What is it inside? And very quickly, you might think about formation, uh, whether um, all, all sorts of things. And then he ends in 7.12, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. That's the golden rule. For this sums up the law and the prophets. So this, this phrase about the law and the prophets, how Jesus stands with respect to it and what it is and how to encapsulate it is sort of the overarching frame around all of these nested threes. And this is where there's a lot of material to sort of go through. And, and the reason I want to do it this way is because traditionally, as I mentioned last week, people have really struggled with this sermon. They haven't struggled with it. Well, they have struggled with it, in fact, as a sermon, because ideally a sermon is one extended idea through many things. Now, people have sort of taken all the individual parts and focused on the individual parts, and focusing on it that way has caused a lot of confusion. And I think, actually, if you look at this question about what does righteousness look like, what are the qualities that the good cop has that helps us know he has righteousness or he's motivated by righteousness, and the deficiency of which, of course, is in the bad cop. So as I mentioned, there are these three, well, there's actually six, two sets of threes that begin with, you have heard it said of people long ago, and the first one is you shall not murder. And here quite famously, Jesus, well, see, this is my difficulty with this. I can read through the text, but with 2,000 years of, of familiarity, you might not hear the text, which is why I try to paraphrase. You should not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is, a, is answerable to the court. But anyone who says, you feel, fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And quite famously, with these sets of, you have heard it said long ago, but I tell you, Jesus seems to intensify the established commandment. He says, well, murder is obviously bad, but anger is bad too. In fact, in a sense, puts you on the same status as murder. And this runs people, this sort of drives people crazy because they say, now, okay, fair enough, but it's a whole lot better to be angry and not murder than to be angry and murder, and, well, quite rightly so. But if the focus of this is on righteousness, this this inner dynamic, this inner quality, this inner aspect that leads towards, produces, is evidence of, and this is this is exactly the difficulty because we're tending, we're trying to look for rules, we're trying to look for uh, causes, we're trying to look for behaviors, we're trying to look for norms, and in our isolation of those things we lose sort of the holistic quality of the idea of dikaiosune or righteousness. 
The same thing happens with adultery and lust. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now again, people will jump in and say, hey, wait a minute. Um, I would sure rather have my spouse lust and stop than lust and follow through. But the point of this is not comparison of those two. The point of this is what kind of how what what kind of inner righteousness leads to actual what the kingdom of God is about. Third one, divorce and oath keeping. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill, the, but fulfill to the Lord the oaths you have made. Now, these two are obviously connected because marriage is about oath-keeping, and divorce is about oath-breaking. And, and the point here is, what kind of heart... What kind of person? What is the quality that, in fact, encompasses both anti-divorce and oath-keeping? Now, obviously, it's the intensification. It's the quality inside that makes the righteous cop good. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Huh? Well, that, that doesn't sound quite right. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, we're pointing to righteousness. This thing on the inside that makes the good cop good and the lack of which makes the corrupt cop do what he does. What sort of righteous heart enables someone to fulfill the law? That's really the question. Now, Jesus famously intensifies the law here, and that causes a, a, rather, a rather broad debate. The attention is drawn from the outward compliance to the sort of tree that bears the fruit of the law naturally, raising the question, how could I become such a tree? Do you really want to become such a tree? Unless, you're righteous, unless your righteousness, that which is inside of you, that affords external goodness, is beyond that of those on stage admonishing you, you won't be able to bear the promised fruit and receive the eternal kind of living. That's what the kingdom is about. So that was part one. You have heard it said. Part two, paying attention to the external practices of righteousness. Now again, when we looked at the two cops, you say, well, how can you distinguish them? They both wear a badge. They both wear a uniform. They both drive a police car. Well, it's by their actions. Giving to the needy. And what he focuses on here are the three main forms of, um, let's say, pious observance. Giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. Um, and, and these are both expressions of righteousness that is inside, but also they are designed to build your righteous muscle. But all of them, because they're sort of three standard ways of expressing piety, of signaling piety, all of them are subject to corruption because if in fact you have a culture where there's a hierarchy and people who give more to the needy, pray more and fast more, are seen as having greater spiritual quality, as having greater righteousness than others, suddenly you have all sorts of corrupting games. 
Jesus noted that there is a deadly and common pitfall that undercuts these three relational exercises between God and ourselves. And so he begins with attending to your righteousness. And so the first verse says this, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Notice there's both a practice and a motivation. And you saw in the earlier part that there were a lot of motivations lined up. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And now, again, the assumption is that with giving to the needy and with prayer and with fasting, there will be reward. But Jesus is saying, if you do these things in order to hike your status among the people watching who have agreed that, well, these higher people who do this more higher status people, you, in fact, will lose what this whole thing is about with your Father in heaven. And this, in fact, undercuts all sort of law-keeping because it is motivated by increasing your social status in the social hierarchy. Relational exercises should be done in secret. Does Jesus have a good reputation? It's a very checkered reputation across the spectrum. Is Jesus willing to, is willing to live with that? He quite certainly is because he operates before an audience of one. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues or on the streets to be honored by them. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now you'll notice the pattern. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand praying in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. I tell you that they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now again, we're asking a question about righteousness. That which inside either makes the good cop or the corrupt cop. And what Jesus is noting is that Hmm. A certain form of corruption is to use these methods to climb social status with others. But social status can be very beneficial. And Jesus says, if you do so, you've already cashed out. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put, on, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that you will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Again, this is about corruption and righteousness. And then part three deals with money, morals, and mercy. The first part deals with money and decay. The second part deals with your neighbor's moral performance and how you regard it. And the third part deals with God's posture towards you. Is God, is being good, neutral, or evil? Just like with the law, just like with external practices of righteousness, and your righteousness should flow out through these areas. Do not heap up for yourselves heaps on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Again, motivation, righteousness, what's going on inside that leads to the right kind of living, a secure kind of living, the best kind of living. 
No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life. And again, this is one command that I'll often repeat, and people will say, oh, this is an impossible command, because worry, I just naturally worry. I'd rather not worry, in fact, and if worry were subject to my will, I would cut it out completely, but you can't. And so Jesus basically says, righteousness inside of you will lead to a life without worry. Do you want that righteousness? How about righteousness in your neighbor? How are you trying to get your neighbor to be righteous? Are you trying to shame your neighbor? Are you trying to judge your neighbor? Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be used to you. In other words, Jesus says, this judging business, that's not what righteousness, internal righteousness looks like expressed. That's what basically attempts to control your neighbors through coercion, shaming, all these kinds of things. That's what that looks like. And you know what? It doesn't work. Don't give dogs what is sacred and do not throw your pearls your pearls to pigs. If you do, they will trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces, which is exactly what happens. Now, righteousness of your neighbor. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be open. Jesus is in a sense saying that this righteousness is available to you. Hmm. Wow. But do I really want it? So in everything you do, um, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. So if you see righteousness as an interpretive key, a lot of the tensions within this main body of the sermon go away. This is what Jesus is pointing to. And he's basically offering and he's basically offering and saying, if this righteousness, if your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't have problems with hypocrisy. You won't have problems with worry. You won't have problems with all these kinds of things that sort of plague us. He helps resolve a lot of traditional interpretive conflicts in figuring out if Jesus is modeling, condemning, or commanding in the sermon. The heart of the question is the transformation of the heart. The good tree bears good fruit. Be a good tree. But how do you become a good tree? Ah. How do we get it? My first question is really, though, are you sure you really want it? Because just about everything he deals with in this sermon flows naturally, and in many respects, we enjoy it because we want it. We practice our righteousness to be seen by others because practicing our righteousness in this way gives us what we want. We outwardly observe the law to gain status among others, but internally, something we can easily hide, well, we'd like our little internal playground, even if we're straight-jacketed, outside. What if it isn't something that you are fully in a position of obtaining even if you really want it? Again, think about the command, do not worry. Now, just about everybody I know would really like to not worry, but they do. Worry is not subject to the will. And in fact, in many ways, a lot of this stuff is not simply subject to the will. You can't wake up one day and say, I'm not going to worry anymore. A lot of people do. doesn't really work. Why? Because actually this righteousness grows in us. And it's not something that we simply decide to do. Now, if you decide not to pursue it, 
it likely will not grow. You're going to have to want it. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open. But it doesn't just come by in one moment of enthusiasm saying, this is what I want. No, you actually have to persist in wanting it. And even that isn't a guarantee of receiving it. The irony of this is that what actually puts this in us is usually all the things we don't really want. You see, Christ's crucifixion was a definitive moment with respect to this because it was a moment when suddenly this righteousness could be seen. This kind of righteousness also seems to develop traction with the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see a marked change in the disciples in the book of Acts from before the Spirit comes until after the Spirit comes. And, and I think that's... that's that's also a part of the fact that after Christ, prompted by the Spirit, they now need to, in some ways, live in the world in a different way. Um, righteousness is a gift, so ask and seek. But Jesus calls, welcomes, admonishes, demands, invites, delivers. Jesus does all of those things. So it isn't just a, a purely passive thing where we just ask that it happen. In fact, I think a lot of this maturity actually comes through suffering. Um, we need something, we need someone to do for us and to be for us. We start with an attitude of confidence and trust. God is good. He wants to give good gifts to his children. But the path will be cruciform. Receiving agopic love, well, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by agopic love? Agopic love is self-donating love. It's the kind of love that a mother gives to a child, a good mother gives to a child. It's the kind of love the good mother builds up the child and the child grows up and develops at the cost of the mother's time, attention, and sacrificial love. Agopic love is how we begin to grow. Delivering agopic love, we doing it for others, is how we mature. And this is what we find again and again. We put on Christ, we grow in Christ, we live into Christ. In the, in the final analysis, this sermon is to be lived, and we'll get into that next week with really the application, the conclusion part of the sermon. So you have the, the aporia, the beatitudes at the beginning. You have this central section that focuses on the question, what is righteousness? What does it look like? How does it grow? Um, how can we be transformed? And then the last part, then, is the application. The sermon is to be lived, even if we're not always sure exactly how. Ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and you will find.